Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech Disruptors by Bloomberg Intelligence. My name is Neeraj Patel. I'm a technology analyst, and I'll be joined by Matt Schettenhelm, a litigation analyst from the Bloomberg Intelligence team, Bloomberg's in-house research group. We are delighted to have the Chief Compliance Officer of ZoomInfo today, Simon McDougall. We hope to learn from Simon about the latest on GDPR, general data protection regulation in the, U- the EU, data privacy regulations emerging in the US, and how ZoomInfo's technology is enabling its customers' ability to manage the use of individual contact data. With that, let's turn to Simon and kick off our conversation by understanding his background and his prior experiences and path before arriving to ZoomInfo. Thanks, Neeraj, and it's great to be here. Thank you for the invite. So my background is deep into privacy and data protection, really for the last 20 years or so. So for a lot of that time, I was a consultant with consultancies such as Deloitte and Monetary, where I was advising large corporates on privacy and data protection. And then once the GDPR was implemented, I'd finished working with some of my clients on that. I wanted to spend some time in public service. So I joined the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK, which is the UK's privacy regulator, and spent three years there finishing as Deputy Commissioner. And I focused there on technology, innovation, working with other regulators, such as our competition regulator, and also leading all the work we did in the UK through COVID. So obviously there was a lot of interesting data challenges as we navigated COVID. And then I finished that last year and then joined ZoomInfo in January this year as their chief compliance officer. Oh, that's great background, Simon. And from this type of difference, when you look at the US and UK environment, could you highlight some of the uh, standout contrast between the two markets? and the data protection regulation environment? Absolutely. And if I think back to when I was first starting out in privacy, there really was very little engagement between the US and the EU on these matters. Uh, and neither really kind of had great visibility of the other. When now I think there's a very vibrant and ongoing dialogue between regulators, companies, advocates. So it has evolved a lot. In a broad brush, Europe, has had a, an omnibus privacy for, law for a long time now. First, the 95 Directive, uh, and then the GDPR that most folk will be with. That went live in 2018. And when I say omnibus, that means that it starts off from saying, okay, any information that relates to somebody is personal data. And if it's personal data, you, you will apply uh, the following principles to it. So that's principles of, of transparency and people having rights over the data and the obligation to keep the data secure. So it starts off on the basis that all personal data has the same regulation around it. And that differs to in the US, where there is still a bit of a patchwork. We'll touch on this along the way, but many states now have privacy law. And then there's sector law, such as gravity Bliley in banking, for instance. And then there's particular rules such as around breach notification for security purposes in most states. So it's a bit more complex in the US where there's no underlying federal universal principles, it's a bit more patchworky. That said, if you look at California, then the, the state legislation there now looks very much like GDPR. So, so there is a bit of convergence going on between the two areas. So uh, we'll touch on those details as we go through, I'm sure. Uh, the other thing I say near that is important is that we will talk a lot about the regulation here. And obviously that's really important. 
but you can't get away from cultural differences as well. And so the importance of free speech in the US versus maybe a level of social cohesion in Europe, there are, there are different priorities given to different equalities within our society, as well as the uh, strict letter of the law. That's very insightful here on the cultural aspects and your point, you know, from your EU experience, I'm assuming the culture over there is much more sensitive to personal data and the use of that data relative to the U.S. Were there any particular industries or use cases that ran afoul of GDPR compliance relative to the other categories? Yeah, it's a I think it's really insightful, Neeraj, as you say, to draw that link between the, the cultural background and some of the priorities given. You know, if you go back into history, and I'm not going back just to the Second World War, I'm almost go, going back to the, the Eastern Bloc before the fall of the, the Berlin Wall and the like, there was an awful lot of state surveillance in Europe, in many countries. And I've had people working on my consulting teams who grew up in Eastern Europe and, you know, knew what it was like to be bugged and to live under heavy state surveillance. And that means there is a lot of concern around government interference, around privacy communications, those kind of points, which maybe aren't the same even in the UK as well as in the US. So there's, there, there's issues there. And at the same time, you could argue sometimes the US has a, a fairly healthy but more structural distrust of, of big governments when there'll be sometimes be a bit more trust of the states in terms of the way that, that the privacy framework is built. But that all said, if I think to, to, to what my, our priorities were at the ICO and what the priorities of the FTC were as the US regulator and the European regulators over the last few years, they had a lot more in common than they had separate. So every regulator is occupied by the large US technology companies, the big platforms, and the influence they're having on competition, on society, on how much data they process. So that was a common theme and understanding how individuals can manage that imbalance of power between them using social media services and sometimes perhaps being manipulated into giving consent in a context, or not being able to not use a service in another context. Those kind of things are all common to everybody. So you do get some difference in, in cultural approaches, but top tier issues were strikingly similar in the US and in Europe. And could you name some of those top tier issues? And second, yes. all, just in respect to cost, we hear a lot of goals that companies are facing on just being compliant with the GDPR regulations. And where does cost rank on this list of obstacles? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think in, I'll deal with the cost point first, Niresh. So in, in terms of cost, I think for most large corporates, you know, the sunk costs was a few years ago. GDPR was a wake-up call and there was an awful lot of expense that went into getting up to speed with GDPR. And some companies, some global companies dealt with it as a Europe-only challenge, but most dealt with that as a global program simply because, you know, you have so many interlinked services, so many data transfers. So in that context, you know, that it was a lot of effort in the 2016 to 2018 period. And I'd say now for those organizations, cost is a feature because cost is a feature in any, any large company at any time, but there's already a lot of sunk cost. And so the big programs have already been done, that the people are recruited, that the policies are in place. 
So it's a bit more now about managing change on an incremental basis and responding to, you know, whatever challenges come up in your sector. So, so in that respect, cost is there as is for any risk management or compliance piece, but it's, it's not a, as big an issue as you might think. In terms of the kind of key themes that regulators are interested in, that if I think how we prioritize things at the ICO, then we would normally prioritize things on the basis of risk of harm to individuals. And this, I think, is a critical concept which is often lost along the way is, is in the end, all these regulators are trying to prevent harm. And in doing so, whenever they're looking at how they allocate their resources to a new theme, it's often going to be a kind of an equation of how many people are affected, but what is what unpleasantness, what unwelcome outcome is going to happen to these people, you know, the harm occurs. So that's led to a big focus around the world on vulnerable people, especially children. So in the UK, we had the age appropriate design code and that's fed through into California recently. So recognizing that children online are often just treated the same as adults, even though they can't really necessarily distinguish between what is a, a trustworthy service or not. So, so vulnerability in children is, is a big thing. Another thing that we had, which was big on scale, but less on harm perhaps was ad tech where there's billions of transactions a day and there's lots of people's information shared. So it has the scale of it, but the, you know, the majority of those transactions are less directly harmful than something bad happens to a child or to a vulnerable person. So, so you end up working through these big themes and saying, what is the actual negative outcome here? Yes, we care about the less of the law as a regulator. You have to care about that. But in terms of prioritizing resources, you're then getting onto, well, you know, is this going to be something unpleasant happening? Okay. That's very helpful for us to understand from a U.S. perspective, Simon. And just circling a little more around the cost commentary. So you had mentioned 2016 to 2018, a lot of investment by the companies to meet this requirement, GDPR requirement. Is there any turning back? You know, companies on an annual basis, they look at the cost for compliance. Can they shut that down? And if not, what are their other options to kind of reduce the cost here? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Erich. And I think, um, if I think back in my past, I was mainly focused on financial services. So I ran programs in things such as MIFID 1 and 2 and PSC 1 and 2 as well, different European bits of regulation, which are also transformative in their sectors. And there was always the same kind of pattern whereby you have a big new bit of regulation come in place and there's a deadline and then all organizations with any kind of complexity end up getting towards the deadline and realizing that they have to get the basics in place for compliance. And then what you have after that is a solution which sometimes is held together a little bit by, you know, sticky tape and string. So you have a process of, of rationalization of efficiencies and of automation, which can go on afterwards, you know, so we might have put headcount in, into some part of the process. You say, okay, how do we actually automate it? And that's a trend we're definitely seeing in the privacy world right now, where there's a lot of investment and a lot of interesting services being offered around privacy automation. So that might be around managing your opt-out processes. It might be about managing how you put code reviews in place for your technology or how you map your data. And that is slowly squeezing out inefficiencies which are naturally in place when you have new regulation come in. So I think that's where you're seeing the efficiencies come through is in that respect. Now, I'm not seeing much changing in terms of headcount 
within privacy functions that I'm familiar with. But that's because if you look globally, there's now well over 100 jurisdictions in the world that have some kind of privacy legislation. There's big new countries coming on board all the time with either renewed legislation or brand new legislation. And so those teams are being kept plenty busy with, with the change. So you have them moving on to the new difficult thing, but automation coming up to actually make life easier and more effective and more efficient as, as the regulation gets more mature. Oh, thank you, Simon. And moving off of the kind of cost-centric focus and the ability for the company to utilize or process the data, we understand there are six different paths that they can take for meeting GDPR regulation. Legitimate interest to the business seems to be the primary path at least the most popular path at this point in time. How durable is it? And do you see any current disagreements that are emerging as companies pursue this option? Yeah, it's a great question. So yeah, the, the, what you're referring to there is what the Europeans call lawful basis. And so within the European structure, you have to have a lawful basis for processing data. And some of those are very particular. The ones that are used most commonly on the private sector are some interests, consents, and also performing a, a contract in, in whenever that's a circumstance. I think legitimate interest is, is fascinating. So when I was at the UICO, I was running the ICO's work looking at ad tech and ad tech as an area is, you know, has got a lot of different kinds of companies in it. And some of those players played fast and loose with legitimate interests as a concept. And so we would ask to understand how they were happy using legitimate interests. And sometimes the thinking was a little bit haphazard to be polite. And the problem there was that the way it works in GDPR is it's not enough to say legitimate interest is not, is not just saying I have an interest in processing this data, therefore I'm going to do it. It's actually a balancing test where you have to say as a European data controller, the person who's in charge of the data, okay, I have an interest. I'm going to articulate that interest. And I'm going to consider the interests of the individual and I'm going to weigh them up. And I'm going to conclude that there are, there's minimal risk of harm to the individual and therefore it's okay for me to do the processing. And I'm paraphrasing that terribly, but that's the balancing test. Uh, and what we saw when I was at the ICO was quite a few folk saying, well, we have a legitimate interest because it's commercially useful for us to do this. Therefore we're going to do that. Now that's not, that's not durable, but legitimate interests when applied is very durable because it's been a concept which has been in the European framework all the way through and having that kind of balancing test, you know, actually makes sense when you think about it. It's, it's a thoughtful way of doing things. I actually think in some ways, consent is more problematic in many circumstances right now. It sounds very convenient up front. Well, we're going to get someone's consent before we process the data. The problem comes that a lot of the time the consent gained is gained by, you know, for an individual who is in a hurry, who is never going to read the terms and conditions, who has gone through a process whereby certain choices have been put in the foreground and others taken away from them through what we call dark patterns, design choices. And it's very hard for an individual with minimal time, minimal resources to give their consent in a way which is free and informed and you can rely on. So legitimate interest in some ways puts the responsibility back on the company, back on the organization to say, I'm going to make a call here and I'm going to do the analysis. I'm going to be accountable for that analysis. So uh, I don't see legitimate interests going away anytime soon. I do think that organizations that rely on it 
should make sure they do their legitimate interest assessment, which is a, you know, which, which is where they do their homework and write down their homework and are realistic and thoughtful about how they do the balancing test. And along this line, do you think the pendulum may swing back from privacy protection in the next few years in the EU? Or is this something that this will continue to progress and continue to increase in terms of the amount of specifications and requirements per company? Yeah, that's a great question. It's why I've given a lot of thought to Niraj, because I think I'm going to give you a yes and no answer to that. Because on, on the one hand, privacy as a trend isn't going anywhere. We know we are throwing off more and more data every day, week, year, and more and more of that data is linked to people. And, and so we're going to see more innovation, but then more kind of consequences of, of that data usage. And so privacy will carry on being a theme and it will carry on being a regulatory theme around the world. But if you look at what's happening in Europe right now, especially in continental Europe, and I'm speaking to you from London, so I'm kind of looking over the sea at the EU now, then it's the real action, the real energy is in related data and technology regulation. So we have the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, the Data Act, the Data Governance Act, the AI Act. There's just this whole wave of new regulation coming through from Europe which is trying to get its arms around how it regulates people online, how it regulates the use of AI for decisions, how it regulates large tech platforms, all those sort of things, which until now have kind of really been sitting within the domain of privacy regulation. And now they're going to be covered by other regulation instead. So privacy will still be there, but I think it's morphing into a broader data and technology regulatory play where folk like I, who are kind of compliance people, if all you do is privacy regulation, you are kind of working on a narrow, very narrow brief. And what's going to have to happen is everyone's going to have to say, okay, this is the regulation I'm having to deal with around the data I process, the technology I use, and privacy will just be one component of that. Great, Simon. On that note, I'll pass it over to my colleague, Matt Schettenhelm, to dive into data privacy regulation in the U.S. Matt? Thanks, Neeraj, and good morning, Simon. Before, I, before we get too deep into the weeds on the U.S. side, I thought maybe we'd start with sort of a practical question about how Zoom Info deals with data vis-a-vis -vis consumers in a practical way. So, so, so say I'm, I'm a California resident and I don't want Zoom Info to, to use or sell my data. Can you talk about sort of how you get my data and how easy is it for me to opt out of your program? Yeah, no, that's a, all great questions, Matt. So we, the way Zoom Info works is that the data set we, we utilize for our service is actually a pretty, it's a pretty straightforward data set. So if you compare us to retail data brokers, they might have, you know, 500 data points about an individual and be interested in their home life and their, you know, their travel patterns and all manner of things. You know, Zoom Info is a business to business platform that is just trying to provide data technology and insights to sales, marketing, and recruiting professionals. And the data asset beneath that is, is a straightforward one, which is kind of covering business to business data in a business context and content, context information relating to them. And it's all about just making sure that those sales, marketing, recruiting professionals can find their next best customers and then contact them and talk to them. So it's a lower risk data set than some phone. We get that data from many sources, including publicly available sources, 
uh, including uh, counterparties, including contributing network, including real life researchers. We still have hundreds of folk who are actually doing real life research as well. And so at any one point with inputs coming from a whole range of areas, trying to keep the data accurate. Now, the way it works, Matt, in terms of how we manage this in terms of engaging with people and compliance is that as soon as we realize we have a new record on the, on we'd call it internally, we publish the record. As soon as we kind of form a view that we have a new record, then we start a real-time notification process. So we'll actually reach out to that person normally by email and send them a notification that they are now on our database. And obviously on there, it's the first time that they we engage with them. And on there is a link to opt out if they want to. So they can opt out then, and then they can opt out anywhere further down the line as well through a website or through emailing privacy at zoominfo.com. And we do all that notification, all those opt outs, the same globally around the world. So, so whatever happens, the people are receiving the same notification. And so that means that if somebody is on our website, is on our database, they get the notification and they immediately have a chance to come off that. And we try and make that process as easy as possible. That's very interesting and in many ways sort of goes beyond maybe what the law requires and sort of proactively reaching out to consumers. It, one thing you touched on there is sort of the difference between the data that, that Zoom Info collects, sort of business-focused data and personal data. And I think, you know, lawmakers in the U.S., I think everyone's sort of struggling with how to define things and how to draw lines. I wonder if you could dig in a little more on, on that point and, and how regulators in the U.S. should be thinking about that from your perspective. Yeah. And it's, and we always try to be very careful, Matt, about the terminology here. You know, we, our business data is still personal data. Even if it's in the business context about a business person, it's still also about a human being and we have a kind of GDPR-like mindset here where we'll still, wherever people are in the world, say, okay, that means you have you know, rights to opt out and the like, et cetera, et cetera. And so we don't try and say it's not personal data because it's business data. And at the same time, you know, the, the risk of, to those individuals is much less than, you know, the larger, deeper, maybe more intrusive data sets that, you know, might be used by others. You know, that's not part of our business model. So we can, you know, we manage that. And in the US right now, and as your listeners will be aware, there's a, there's a ongoing process of state privacy laws popping up. So California, Virginia, Colorado, Connecticut, Utah, you know, all getting state-based privacy laws in place. The majority of them, California being an exception, the majority of them make a distinction between business contact information and, you know, kind of, and other more either retail consumer or personal or, you know, kind of more individually personal data. So we recognize that there is a different risk associated with business contact data to other data, but we still treat it as personal data for our kind of, you know, the way we think about compliance. Got it. So in that sense, uh, California's sort of reluctance to extend an exemption for business data, you're in compliance with that because you sort of go beyond, you treat it all as personal information. Yes. Yeah. And I hate to take credit for this because this was the approach before I came in. And I'll be honest, as a, an ex-regulator, one of the things that really attracted me to Zoom Info was that they're already working on this basis. But because we have had PR as a benchmark effectively for how we manage personal data privacy compliance over the last few years, as these new rules are come in place, California included, it really hasn't been that much of a heavy lift for us. Because if you do what we'd call in, in GDPR speak, an Article 14 compliant privacy notice, 
You're actually covering the vast majority of what's required in new laws that are coming through. So a little bit of tweaking and away you go. So the, California included, the new state laws uh, haven't caused us much disquiet or operational change because we've already applied that benchmark. That's not the same for other organizations. So, you know, some have pursued that approach. Some are working, they use words like as applicable by law and going state by state as they go through. I think for those organizations, every new state, every new law that comes through is quite painful for them. But for us, we've just kept it simple. And I think we're seeing the benefits of it now. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, it, you know, this is something in the U.S. that I think lawmakers are struggling with. You know, at the federal level, we've seen discussion of in Congress of efforts to try to pass a federal law here. As you said, we have California and three or four other other states. Zoom Info have a feel on, you, you said you try to set the bar very high, so you're not as bothered by state regulation, but is a patchwork a, a, still a problem? Is the preference sort of a national standard? Would that be a better approach to this issue or are you sort of indifferent? Nothing different at all. I think on a personal level and Zoom Info as a company, we'd rather see a federal rule. It's, you know, we're, it, we've, we're already seeing you know, this patchwork build up and every state law is slightly different. You know, every, every time people will put their own, you know, their own flavor of state rules and it will be a headache to manage every nuance as these things get more complex. Now, you know, I haven't got the crystal balls to know whether the current federal law could pass this time around. I think it would be a massive achievement to do so, but it would, you know, it would need a lot of time and cooperation that perhaps, you know, is going to be hard to find. But if the federal law doesn't go through, I think you can expect a lot of, a lot of folk at the state level to say, okay, if federal can't do it, then we're going to go ahead and push on with state legislation going into the fall, going into the new year. So you could see quite a few of these new laws pop up and that will, that's not great for any organization. I think it's mainly going to hit mid-sized mid firms harder in some ways as that, yeah, we've got a, you know, a large full-time team that work on on compliance and a team that focuses purely on, on regulatory change and new laws. When if you're a mid-sized firm and you're just getting these bulletins coming in about another state you operate in having new rules, that's going to be a real drag. So yeah, so we'd like to see a federal law. Our personal preference would be that that's, that, that law recognize the difference between B2B data and protecting retail consumers, because we think that's where the main focus is, and it is for the majority of state laws as well. But in any respect, we'd rather go with the federal law. That, that makes a lot of sense. And just as one last sort of big picture question to close out on the U.S. side before I toss it back to Neeraj. So just sort of from that big picture perspective, how do you see the law continuing to evolve in, in the U.S.? Do you have an expectation that, that it continues to be driven by the states? You said you don't have a crystal ball, but any big picture thoughts on that? Well, if, if I kind of, dusted up a crystal ball somewhere and had a guess at this, which may be, you know, seen as a laughable prediction in, in, in weeks and months to come. It would be that the federal law this time round runs our road. And then there's kind of an accelerated process at the state level. And that becomes so untenable in 18 months or so that hopefully a bit of sanity prevails and there's a renewed push on the federal side. That, that would be kind of, you know, but you're talking to a Brit about American politics. So I, you know, that's kind of, it's a very fuzzy crystal ball at like that. At the yeah. same time, the FTC continues to, to push on itself and, you know, with both its rulemaking, which is a slower process, but might creep up and its actual work on areas such as commercial surveillance. So it's not as if we're all waiting for these laws to, to come through in, in practice. 
it's going to be a, a busy time, whatever happens. Makes sense. And with that, I'll toss it back to you, Neeraj. Yeah, thanks, Matt. And Simon, just hitchhiking on your commentary about ZoomInfo's approach, can you quantify or give us a little bit of a description how that stacks up against other competitors and peers on your notification process and compliance guidance for customers? And if there's any common methods being deployed in the marketplace that you're seeing from your peers? Absolutely. And we're very clear that we want to be market leaders on privacy. We want to be innovators on privacy. And we see this as a competitive differentiator, uh, especially as ZoomInfo's number and proportion of large clients of international clients is growing all the time. And those folks tend to, you know, have higher expectations around privacy compliance. So, so when we're talking to large multinationals and we're talking across a, a range of countries and at a scale, they have, you know, an expectation of very high standards of privacy compliance. So as I said before, we've kept it very simple and said, okay, wherever anyone is in the world, they get the same notification. They have the same rights, whether they are there in law or not. And we deal with people, you know, kind of in the same way. It is not fully indicative of our competitors. And, you know, I don't want to kind of see be it be absolute around this because everyone's evolving their approach all the time. But what we often see elsewhere is, is wording such as, as applicable by law in compliance with local jurisdiction, blah, de, blah, de, blah. And so there's kind of like little opt-outs along the way. And it's a more ad hoc and patchwork approach to things. So, yeah, so we're kind of, you know, we're trying to use this as something which makes our conversations with, in particular, in larger clients, but really with all of our clients, much simpler. You know, we're not having to kind of nuance this at all. We're saying that this is what we do. And we're seeing that get a really, a really strong, positive reaction from, for, from our customers as we're engaging both with the sales and marketing folk and then and with the legal compliance folk. Great. Simon, this has been a great conversation and we truly enjoyed your insights on all aspects, data privacy, GDPR, ZoomInfo's notification technology. Let's wrap up with your final thoughts on any upcoming events or technologies that we should look forward to from ZoomInfo as it relates to this, these topics. Yep. So in terms of where we're going, our business model isn't changing very much. So we're just looking to scale and to engage and be more automated. We already process the majority. I think right now on my latest dashboard is about 75% of our opt-out requests are processed automatically and in near, near real time, about an average three hours from somebody asking to come off the database to when that's processed. But we want to make that uh, bigger and faster and easier for folk. So there's incremental improvements to how we do that. If people, I'll, I'll repeat again, privacy at zoominfo.com. If people do want to opt out, then we're good with that. We want, we don't want people in our database that want to be on the database. So, so, so people should feel free to engage with us on that. And then, and then as we go forward, I have a particular personal interest in privacy enhancing technologies. There's lots of innovation out there in the market then right now on how you can use such as differential privacy, homomorphic encryption, secure multi-party computing to, to do more with data in a privacy respectful way. And I, I'm looking to see how we can use ZoomInfo's very large data sets in ways which are, you know, kind of privacy respectful, but you know, innovative along the way. So, so in the short term, it's just getting better about how, how we innovate in the market and the long term, it's, it's using these emerging technologies to our benefit. Thank you, Simon. We truly enjoyed this discussion. 
And we look forward to having you here on Bloomberg Intelligence Tech Disruptors in the Future. Thank you. Thanks, Neeraj. Thanks, Matt.